Hi, this is Liam Hunt. Thanks for joining us today. It's the 4th of July of 2020. Welcome to the Battle Scribe podcast, where we're sharing the stories of American heroes for future generations. This episode is episode number one, and today we're honored to have Chad Russell, former U.S. Marine and veteran of the Second Battle of Fallujah, joining us to share his story. So you are a Marine, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah, so I, I joined uh, the United States Marine Corps, and uh, I did so right after high school, essentially. Um, when I was a sophomore, I grew up in Central Oregon, and I went to Mountain View High School and uh, in Bend. And the uh, 9-11 happened when I was a sophomore. And that kind of uh, was a, a stirring point for me. Uh, I had always been interested in the military, so I think at some point I was going to try to pursue it. My Since I was a little kid, I was dressing up and, you know, fatigues and I was a, you know, whatever, an army man for, you know, <laughs> Halloween and things like that. Um, and I just had an interest in it, I think. I don't know if it was for movies or what it was. My uncle, my one of my dad's older brothers was... Uh, Vietnam veteran. He served, uh, enlisted and served in Vietnam and was wounded and sent home. And when I was a kid and we'd go stay at my grandma's house that he bought for my grandmother, um, after the war, um, he kept a lot of his stuff that I got into as a kid in his closet. And he was a really quiet guy and kind of kept to himself and never talked about it. Um, I didn't even talk to him about the military until after I was in the military and I saw him years later at my grandmother's funeral, um, which was an interesting bonding connection. And I think at that point he probably felt comfortable talking to me a little bit because I had some experiences and yeah. he was in the infantry, which I was too. Um, but I think that that was a part of it. Another part oh, of it was, Marine. Oh, go ahead. Was he also a Marine? He was not, he was in the army infantry. Army? Yeah. So basically, and what he told me was that basically he was jumping on helicopters and heading into country and doing a lot of like um, listening posts, observation posts, LPOPs, and on the, uh, the Charlie, you would call them. Uh, they weren't really fighting the MVA. Uh, the Marines were fighting the MVA. My battalion, actually, that I was assigned to just you know, way years before me that I learned they were on the coast fighting yeah. tanks and like conventional warfare against the, the NBA. Um, and my, while my uncle was in country further wow. inland and they were going in and, and, uh, basically seek and destroy missions type mm -hmm. type thing. Um, so, but I didn't know any of that as a kid. Um, I grew up in an apolitical household, so it wasn't like, and there wasn't an agenda in our house, like push us in a certain direction. I think we were just naturally conservative because my parents started having kids at a young age and they were small business entrepreneurs. And my dad tried his hand at some different projects mm -hmm. and he was good at drywall. So he started Ben drywall and became very successful as a contractor, he had one of the largest drywall companies in Bend for a long time. Mm. Um, a guy without a college degree, um, yeah. just learned how to carve out a life and take care of his family and achieve the things he wanted to do, which was basically be gone hunting as much as humanly possible. Um, but kind of back to your question, 
I also had a teacher in high school that was a Marine Colonel and his assistant was a Navy Master Chief. And I joined the Navy NJROTC in high school because they, their numbers were low and they get funding from the Navy if they have good recruiting and numbers. So they do get some funding, I think, from the military to help fund those programs, but, the fun, but the, everything was really low. And this was uh, pre-9-11, I believe, is when they were starting to kind of go out and recruit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here's a full bird colonel that shows up to a varsity football practice one evening before we go play Friday Night Lights. And he, and he, I mean, he had his service alphas on and he had this big stack and he was a Vietnam vet, you know, mm -hmm. and a lot of us were, were, I think, looking at that and going, wow, you know, this is pretty cool. So a bunch of us that were on the football team, it was a smart play on Colonel Brock's behalf. I'm still friends with him today. Um, he got a bunch of us jocks to join the ROTC and then a bunch of other people joined the ROTC. So they boosted up their numbers. Um, and his son was an active duty lieutenant in the infantry, Casey. And 2003 is when the Iraq ground war kicked off in March. And I was in his dad's class. So we were writing letters to these guys on the front lines, essentially. And um, my mom and I would go get these awesome care packages and send them to them. And Casey sat down while he was in Iraq on the push up and was writing letters back to me. Oh, that's and cool. I think it was really cool. Um, so that was a, a, I think a big reason why is Colonel Brock, probably Casey pushing towards the Marines. And just because the recruiter did a good job of appealing to a certain kind of personality. <laughs> yeah. Because when I was interested in joining, I went and I, was shopping around. I went to all the different branches and heard what they had to say. Well, the last office I went to was a Marine recruiter, um, Gunnery Sergeant Allen, like this, gosh, he must have been 5'3", tanker, like just a quintessential Marine. Like, yeah. you know, he's intense, short guy, but just all muscle. Mm -hmm. And I recall him saying something to, the, to, to me in the effect of, hey, I saw you looking at these other branches and talking to the Army and the Navy, blah, blah, blah. And he said, uh, I'm just going to tell you this right now. We don't promise you anything here. The only thing you're going to get, they're gonna, he goes, they're going to promise you all kinds of shit. He goes, the only thing we're going to promise you is if you earn the EGA. The Eagle Globe and Anchor, that's all you're going to get. You don't get a participation trophy for boot camp no. and some of these other things. And, and he goes, when you're ready for a real challenge, come back and talk to me. And he basically slammed the door in my face and, and did the, you know, reverse here's, cycle. The, here's the cookie tray, <laughs> take it away type of thing. And I think that was very smart with me because I was just kind of a, a competitive, aggressive kid that's why i played competitive sports in high school mm -hmm. i just always had a desire to serve the country and obviously 9-11 stirred in my heart to want to serve and yeah. at that point in my life i was already kind of thinking through my head okay it's definitely wartime there's a war on i don't want to miss the war so i want to serve and i actually had a 
when I decided to become a Marine, I actually had a slot to do presidential security hmm. because of my physical fitness test and some of the recommendations that I was able to get from Colonel Brock and stuff. Hmm. Um, but I'm glad I didn't do that. Um, he called me up one day when I was on my senior trip, actually, with my buddies um, the summer before I actually went in because I was in the delayed entry program. So I actually joined up, went up to MEPS, did all that stuff in Portland, um, had my slot to do presidential security. So basically it would be guarding the president and yeah. you know, this type of stuff. And he called me up and said, hey, I have this slot for infantry open if you want to go. You said you wanted to go sooner, so I'm letting you know. And I, I thought about it, and I called him back, and I said, put me in coach, basically. So that's kind of the reason I, I went that direction. I think there was a handful of different things working. Mm -hmm. So what, what year was it again that you joined the Marine Corps? Yeah, so I joined – in 2003 okay. so yeah mm. okay like the beginning of all that yeah so so late late 2003 i was in the delayed entry program and then i didn't go to boot camp until september so. mm -hmm. okay. which boot camp did you go to um mcrd so i'm what they refer to as a hollywood marine yeah <laughs> You're silent. Which I'm thankful. So yeah, I had a cousin. Uh, Navy. Have Paris Island. Yeah, I had a cousin who's actually in the Navy, and and the the year he went through boot camp, they put him in this um, experimental joint Navy Marine boot camp on Paris Island, <laughs> and that's just. Half his group didn't make it, and he ended up with pneumonia. And but he still somehow graduated at the top of his class. He he pulled it off. But that's awesome. Yeah, I mean the weather out there, the humidity in the summer, like yeah. the chiggers in the grass, and different things they have going on versus San Diego weather. It's kind of like it's, um, although Camp Pendleton does get cold. Don't let people tell you it doesn't. I mean. I was thinking to myself a few times out there sleeping overnight for different training and whatever, even in boot camp, when we did the camp Pendleton phase, I was like, this is uh doesn't feel like San Diego right now. Cause I'm freezing my butt off and they starve you on purpose to yep. test your yep. you know, mental fortitude and all that type of stuff. So. Yep. Hey, at least at least I would assume they were, but at least they're not throwing cold water on you. Right. Yeah, not at that moment. Exactly. I have a couple of buddies that are that are uh, were seals. Okay. It's constant right. water being dumped on them, sitting yeah. in their shorts, and that's all they've got on is their shorts and sleeping out underneath the stars down there on the beach. With guys coming along throwing water on them on purpose in the middle of the night. Oh yeah, man. I've, yeah, that's one of my th things I, I like to do. Like, <laughs> when I when I go down to San Diego now, I like to go go to have some food at the Hotel Dell, and I'll sit out there. And watch that the seals just get hazed on the beach because yeah. all the guys and buds are down there doing their portion in the water, you know. Yep. Yep. So, uh, so you did end up getting deployed to Iraq, though. I did. I did. So how many deployments did you have? I had three. Right. In total. So I was not on the invasion of Iraq because I was in high school writing letters to Casey Brock right? Lieutenant Brock. And, um, 
I was on basically the follow-on deployment into Iraq, which would be known as OIF-2, I guess, Operation Iraqi Freedom 2. Um, and it was, it was uh, I was training during Fallujah 1, basically, that was going on. And that, that happened right after those contractors were captured in Fallujah. Yeah. And they hung them on the bridge and President Bush sent the Marines in basically. Yeah. Um, and they had them halt and pull them back. Um, and it was a full on, and I think that's, you know, that's when Fallujah got name recognition of, whoa, this is a, this is a hotbed area for just terrorists mm-hmm. in this thing. And we were watching it on the news um, back at Camp Pendleton. And I know now from talking to my former battalion commander, Willie Buell, and Sergeant Major Sachs, that they knew that we were headed for something, mm-hmm. but they didn't, we didn't quite know what that looked like yet. Yeah. But, I, but especially since they halted the Marines for political reasons now, you know, after listening to General Mattis, he said it was one of the times where he, he followed orders, but he was worried that his men might question his loyalty to them for asking him to do that and then asking him to pull back. But it was, a, you know, it was, that's politics. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I was in Fallujah too, towards the end of my first deployment. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, I was, we were operating in and around Abu Ghraib prison, the infamous prison where all that stuff happened with the army after I was there and all that. The army, right? <laughs> right so we were basically we were on the operation iraqi freedom mission and a part of our job and role was patrolling those streets and in and around that area our other companies were spread out in different areas um and we were training the iraqi army at the time we were going out on patrols with the new iraqi police mm-hmm. we would take rotations and go out on patrols with them and basically i remember one time we our squad got a mission where they got brand new Iraqi police cars. And so we had fun with it because here we are at 19. And I'm like, hey, you guys, we're going to go pick up these Iraqi police cars, brand new cars, probably bought with our taxpayer dollars, <laughs> and jump in them and follow us back. You know, And this was before the IEDs, the improvised explosive devices, were super big. They were kind of small. Um, we, we didn't experience a casualty until kind of later in that deployment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sergeant Juan Calderon was killed, unfortunately, and he left behind a, a wife and a daughter. I can't remember if he had multiple kids, but either way, that was kind of our our company's first experience with death um, over there, and it really was kind of a wake up call. Like, okay, this is really very serious, and we knew it was serious anyways, but nobody had been killed yet. Yeah. So, you know, that was that was pre Fallujah, but um, we were doing all kinds of stuff before that. Uh, we were tra- We were um, chasing down. It seemed like we were constantly trying to chase down Zarqawi. We were always getting um, intel about him being in and around the area. He was one of the uh, orchestrators of the second Fallujah battle that was on the horizon for us. We didn't quite know it. I think our battalion commander and sergeant major knew that it was, and probably some of the higher. But I was 19, so yeah. When you're in a rifle squad, so I was a. And 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, Lima Company, 3rd Platoon, 3rd Squad, 3rd Fire Team Leader. And 
to be honest, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know why it worked out that way, but um, I probably shouldn't have had a um, M203. M203 is what the fire team leaders carry. I should have probably just been in a fire team, you know, as a 19 year old, but um, post the, the invasion of Iraq, there was a lot of senior Marines that either got out or didn't extend their contract or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there was just billets that needed to be filled. And I happened to be in a position that I accepted. Um, I learned a lot of tough lessons from being a young guy with not a lot of experience, you know, and, having peers that were salty Marines that were like, you don't fucking rate that M203, you know? And I knew that those eyeballs were on me, but you know, when your staff sergeant comes to you and says, do you think you can handle this? You're, you don't say, I don't think I can handle it. Staff sergeant. You just don't say that as a Marine, especially if you're, I was pretty highly motivated at the time and definitely the oorah type of guy. And anybody that remembers me during that time would, would be like, oh, we remember freaking high and tight, like <laughs> motivated Russell for sure. Like I didn't mellow out till a little bit after that first deployment, after I learned all these lessons, Yeah, you kind of learn the ropes and where you fit in and what your role is and make a lot of mistakes basically. Um, so yeah, that was my first deployment. Then you were asking me about second and third. The second deployment was... Um, 90 miles from the Syrian border um, in a place called Haditha. Um, And we operated down on the Euphrates River, basically in these villages. And since we were close to foreign country, we had a lot of foreign fighters coming over. And it was kind of an R&R area for foreign fighters, essentially, coming over, trying to kill Americans. And... um, Third deployment was I was on the USS Bonham Richard, or affectionately known as the Bonnie Dick, we call the ship. And we left out of San Diego. Um, that was aboard. Uh, we were the 3 1 was the battalion landing team for the 13th Marine Expeditionary Force. Mm-hmm. So basically, that's what's unique about the Marine Corps is that we're constantly training to go to war, but also do humanitarian aid and different types of missions. Um, and that's what makes our branch unique. So those workups usually take about a year to happen. So we were already underway training for about a year to get ready for that as a battalion was already coming back. Well, there's other MUs going on. There's the 31st MU, there's, there's some different ones. So there's basically constantly rotation of Marines that have been training for together for a year to be the battalion landing team for those MEFs to go out and basically do this. And when they come back, that unit that's been training for a year takes over for them and they go. And that's why there's constant deployments. So, you know, when there was an earthquake, they sent the Marines in. If there's, you know, civil unrest in an ally country, they're going to send the Marines in. If they have a, have a uh, embassy that's under attack or something, guess what? There's Marines out to sea already or training with other countries. So our MEF was a little bit different. Our MU is a little bit different because of the war. Mm-hmm. And that was during General Petraeus's, uh, he orchestrated the surge. 
So we didn't do the typical go to all these different countries. We went to a few, you know, which is fun for Marines because you're basically getting Liberty calls and training during the day and having fun kind of partying at night, basically, when you're off the ship. Um, but with Iraq going on in the surge, they basically just surged us sent back into Iraq, essentially. And it was the very first deployment of the Marine Raiders, which they weren't called Raiders at the time. They were just Marine Force Recon that were yeah. grandfathered in to MARSOC, essentially. And we went to Kuwait, and our MARSOC guys are former Force Recon guys. They went into Afghanistan, and they took a couple shooters. At that time, I was in the sniper platoon. Um, and even the previous deployment I was. So kind of backing up after the Fallujah deployment, so many of our snipers were wounded pre-Fallujah or in Fallujah, but they needed to rebuild the platoon. And so I wanted to challenge myself after that deployment. And I tried out for the platoon and, I don't know, 70, 80 guys showed up to take the indoc, And only eight of us were left after the first... <laughs> Wow. Um, after the first indoc, and then they had to do two more indocs to fill up the platoon. Well, my follow-on two deployments, that Haditha deployment and the surge deployment, I was um, in the cyber platoon and basically on a team of four men, and we would support the company levels. And we worked for the battalion commander, and we worked for the company commanders. So that's that's what I did. So. So was that as by support, like a sniper support, Overwatch type of stuff? Or? Yeah. So um, a lot of it's reconnaissance and surveillance. Most of it is, um, you know, a, a small percentage of the job is taking shots on targets. You know, um, we did that as well. We did a lot more of it on my second deployment because of the type of, we were basically hunting IED emplacers, essentially. Um, in Vietnam, it used to just be two-man teams because yeah. I think the foliage, you know, allowed for, it was better for two guys or a guy to go out yeah. and, you know, be hidden. But in a desert where you're either hiding in one of three places, you're hiding in a desert hide, which is miserable because you're digging a hole, basically, and putting a yeah. cover over yourself. You're hiding in an unoccupied house, which is dangerous because it can be booby-trapped. But you don't have to worry about people coming to it because it's unoccupied unless they just show up there to work on it or something. And then an occupied house, which is where we would go and take, purposely take a house that had people in it. But that had risks as well because people don't leave their house for a day or two, just like you and I would. They're humans. They're, they're going to come looking for the family. Yeah. So all of a sudden we've got uncle, whoever, Ahmed or whoever the heck it is. And we got their brother in there because they've come. We, we can't let them go. Yeah. You know, and we're trying to complete our mission. So that, that actually became the most effective, I think, because it allowed us to be the most stealthy hmm. and kind of take, take the enemy by surprise, meaning that they, we would insert at night. Yeah. Patrol into a place that we had already patrolled days before and picked out our hide. We'd just blend in with the grunts, go on a patrol with them, look at some houses or places that look like good 
overwatch of avenues of approach or high IED in placed areas or places that already had blown up holes in the ground because they would just come back and put IEDs back in those holes. Mm-hmm. And so that worked well for us and we eliminated a bunch of bad guys on the battlefield. Yeah. But it was a difficult time during the war because um, of the politics that were getting involved with it. Mm-hmm. And the, <clears throat> when I was on my first deployment, the rules of engagement, well, let's just say this. The rules of engagement never changed on paper. And we all had them in our left breast pocket, laminated. Mm-hmm. But how they were interpreted changed. Mm-hmm. So the verbiage never changed, to my knowledge, but how they were interpreted from the higher ups on down to the guys on the ground changed a lot. Mm-hmm. In, some, in some cases, it was changing weekly. And it was getting frustrating because it was like, okay, so can we protect our Marines? Are we allowed? Like, we know these people aren't supposed to be out here. We know they're not supposed to be digging on the side of the road. So you told us if they have a shovel and they're on the side of the road and they're in this area, they can be shot. Okay, so that's what we did. And then it became, oh, you, you have to see them with an IED in their hand. Well, well what's an IED? Like, yeah. they're not all the same. They're improvised. You know what I mean? Like, what are they doing in these areas? And the, and, and, and the enemy got smart, too. They, they knew how to adapt, and they have adapted to our techniques and they've adapted their techniques yeah and so it made it just more difficult because i guess our war was kind of like vietnam in the sense that we didn't know who the the good guys and the bad guys were a lot of times because they're not wearing uniforms yeah yeah you know so i know we're we're kind of going on bunny trails but that's all right Which one would you say was your hardest deployment? I would say hardest is probably the first one, just because of the battle, the second battle of Fallujah, which was called Operation Phantom Fury or Al Fajr, as it's known. From the why, because of the casualties. Mm-hmm. Um, we lost 33 Marines, our battalion. Um, our company, I believe lost eight men and, um, we had hundreds of purple hearts just in our company, Oh wow! 300 purple hearts just in our company. Some guy with multiple injuries, some that were getting wounded and even sneaking away from the battalion aid station, coming back out to find their guys to fight with them, even though they weren't supposed to, um, I think that was just because of the, the the sheer volume of casualties in such a small amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 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 we snuck into position on the eighth and the real fighting really started on the ninth, yeah. the morning of, and, or the, la- the previous evening we snuck kind of into position. And then the morning of the ninth, we, we started really going house to house and doing all that stuff. And we took casualties on the first few blocks, you know, yeah. three of my buddies killed like that. Um, you know, I'm hearing on the PIR who it is. Um, P- the little 
Uh, not everybody could have calm because we just weren't set up for that, but the fire team leaders did, and we could talk to our our squad leader. So I kind of knew what was going on. But I would say what was easier about it was the rules of engagement. It was basically we know we're going into a fight. We know that there's we're going to take casualties. So they already t- had told us this stuff, and it was like if you feel threatened by somebody on the other side of you shoot to kill the rest of the war was not like that yeah. it was very different it was very much you know in one sense it was very much black and white in another sense the rest of the, the my last two deployments were they got progressively more frustrating because not because we couldn't kill people but because we didn't have clear rules of engagement which made us feel like well you don't want us shooting at a vehicle. You, you want us to warn a vehicle that's coming at us, but you don't want us to shoot into the, the vehicle. And you want to give them too many chances. Well, yeah. you know, a lot of us had already lived through buddies dying of vehicle-borne IEDs coming in yeah. and blowing up our friends, you know, and hearing the stories and hearing the news reports. And here we are out there, right, having to navigate all this stuff. So. In one sense, the that part of those follow-on two deployments were harder for that reason, but we didn't have as many casualties at such a high volume as we did in that Fallujah push. So in that 15 days of just basically all-out war against you know, an entrenched enemy that had these months after that Fallujah won, they pulled back. Basically what we did was the leaders determined to create kind of a, we're going to pick a fight with you. We're going to come meet you, Mm -hmm. but we're not going to tell you when. Yeah. That's why it was such a built up thing because they came in from all over the place to to fight us. And our idea behind it, I believe the rationale was let's just pull them into one area and have a good old fashioned street fight and kill as many of them as we can basically. Yeah. And thin them out. I remember reading, a lot of stuff about it when it was going on and uh if i remember right it's it's that city in particular has been the hardest fighting that we've had over their period um, all around through this whole how many years has it been now <laughs> it's been a while yeah i don't i don't personally particularly know why because i haven't spent a lot of time studying it after everything i experienced there because i haven't really wanted to to be honest i'm yeah. um, just with my own personal frustrations and not having maybe unpacked some things about that time there, mm-hmm. but it is, they call it the city of mosques. There was mosques everywhere. So high religious focus there. I think that has something to do with it. Um, but yeah, it just, it was what it was and they had time to build it up defensive. I was a part of um, pre, Pre-Second Battle of Fallujah, when we were in country, our company went on an operation called Operation Black Bear. And it was a strategic feint, it was called. We were appearing to go invade the city. We had a big show of force. And the whole idea strategically was to see, probe their defenses and see what they had and see how they would react. Well, we're rolling down this the road and tracks and I was in a track company 
And as soon as we turned the corner where they can basically see us, they had already had spotters out, you know, they're lobbing. So they were already prepared with uh, mortars and all kinds of stuff. And I remember just thinking, this is sucks, man. We're sitting in, we know we're not going to dismount. We already had been briefed on what the mission was. The mission was yeah. not to dismount and attack the city. The mission was to push in and the tanks pushed up and the tanks got all the action, man. They were, I remember that thinking, oh my gosh, man, the tanks are just, they're just ripping like unloading on whatever they're seeing and they're pushing and they're totally protected. Yeah. RPGs are just bouncing off these tanks. I don't think they probably had anything that could take out one of our Abrams tanks um, that were there, but regardless, we're sitting in these (laughs) tin cans told not to get out and look out the top. And it's like, if we get a direct hit from one of these mortars coming down that are exploding outside of our freaking tracks, we're all going to die. Yeah. I've never got any action. Right. And so for young Marines that didn't really get the kind of action we were in the Marine Corps for, we were like, this is going to suck. You know, that's just, was our attitude at the time. Um, But I was on that. And then, you know, obviously the plan was completely different (laughs) attacking the city. You know, they didn't expect what we did. Yeah. It came from the opposite side came through the, the uh, railroad berms mm-hmm. and started attacking from that end. So that, that's the side that they would think would be the last place we would come, the most cumbersome side. Yeah. To take them by surprise, essentially. So. Yeah, so I know we're, I'm, I'm kind of running on bunny trails, so I apologize. You guys just... If you have certain questions, um, don't hesitate to um, throw them out there. Um, let's see. Oh, um, so I remember a while back I read a piece of the story that you posted about a flag, about the flag. I was wondering, could you share that? Yeah, so the flag is actually right here over my shoulder. Uh, I was going to ask about that too. <laughs> yeah, so that's the flag I was talking about. Um, That's all the time we have for today. To hear the rest of Chad's story, including the story about his flag in Fallujah, be sure to listen in to our next episode of The Battle Scribe.